0: You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Each year an average of approximately 18,500 self-managed super funds get wound up, with many of these being on the advice of a financial advisor. However, before providing any wind-up advice, there's a number of things that an advisor should check as, depending on the fund's circumstances, they could impact either the decision to wind up or the order of steps the trustee should take to wind up their fund. My name is Craig Day, head of the First Tech team, and joining me to discuss the issues associated with winding up an SMSF is Kim Guest, one of my senior technical services managers. G'day, Kim.
1: Hi, Craig. How
0: are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. How are you?
1: Very good, thank you.
0: Excellent, excellent. Now, a little bit different today. Hmm. You get to ask the questions. I like it. It's good. Yeah, you, you, you take my job of the easy job. Yeah, it
1: is the easy job. <laughs> All right, so
0: easy. we're going to be talking about self-managed super funds, winding up.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's go. Okay, so we're talking about winding up self-managed super funds. Now... Apparently, there's two different types of wind-ups. There is the optional wind-up, where the trustee actually has a choice, mm-hmm. or there's compulsory wind-ups, where the trustee doesn't have a choice. Could you give us a quick summary of these two circumstances and how they can happen?
0: Yeah, sure. Okay, let's start off, start off looking at optional wind-ups. So, these are where the trustees basically made the decision not being forced to but simply made the decision to wind their fund up and this can be arranged for a range of reasons Like, and probably the most common that we see is due to death now you would, might think death well you don't you have to wind up well no this is the circumstances where the surviving trustee um, has been left with something that they uh, don't really know much about potentially, especially if you've got a dominant trustee who was the one running the fund in Murphy's Law. It's always the one that that, that dies first. So you've now got uh, the less experienced or less engaged trustee, even though technically they should just be as equally as engaged. Um, they're left with something that they have you know don't know a lot about and don't really want, and therefore they want out. So that might be a situation where we see the fund being wound up. Um, another one commonly is incapacity, where the members are getting on a bit, and their ability and or desire to manage their their financial affairs, specifically their self managed super fund, is starting to wane. So we might decide, hey, let's just get out of here now and going back to a to a large public offer fund, where you know there's a there's a third party trustee. Um, also, in a lot of circumstances, and this may be with the assistance of a financial advisor, there is a realisation that the SMSF structure is not needed or appropriate, and they can get the same outcome in a large fund. So they may have been set up initially in a self-managed fund inappropriately by you know someone else. Um, and we're now talking to a financial advisor and they're saying, actually, you really don't need to be here to achieve what you want and it's simply not appropriate for you. So, hey, what I recommend here is, is you wind this thing up and we and we go to a more appropriate fund for you. And then there's always cost, uh, where the fund has now gotten too small to really be justified from a cost perspective. And this can, can happen for a range of reasons, in, including some of the things we've already talked about. Um, it could be due to the death and uh, of one of the members and we're now paying out lump sum deathbed. So the, the fund shrinks in size. It could be due to irrevocable ne- negative returns. So we've made a disastrous investment decision, and there's no chance of that. Those assets that are now worthless ever being recovered, um, and so therefore it's shrunk in size with no real hope of it ever getting back up to a, a sufficient size. Or it could be due to you know a relationship breakdown. Commonly, you know, a couple might get divorced. And, if, you know, if you don't really like the side of the other person anymore, you don't really want to be in a super fund with them, do you? So, Not usually, no. No, no. So no. what that happens there is generally one of the members or potentially even both of the members decide we're out of here mm. um, and obviously resulting in the fund being wound up.
1: Mm, okay um, so that's where they have a choice what mm-hmm. about when they're forced to wind up with something yeah and
0: this typically happens where the trustee becomes a disqualified person and this can happen in a range of circumstances but basically might well be that the ATO has just decided Kim that they don't like you oh. um, they've noticed some dodgy behavior being you know perpetrated on the uh, on the fund and therefore one of their favorite little compliance uh, tricks here is just simply to make the trustee a disqualified person and so that can be the trustee, individual trustee, or they just simply disqualify the The you know the directors of the corporate trustee. Now in that situation, remember the the structure of an SMSF: all members must be trustees, and all trustees must be members. Um, in that situation, as soon as you're disqualified from acting as a trustee, then. you've know, you got to basically get out of the fund. You're not allowed to be a member of the fund anymore. So uh, in that situation, if they've come in and disqualified all of the trustees, trustees really basically have no option there. Their only option is uh, to wind the fund up and go to a large fund or maybe transfer to um, a small APRA fund and get a third-party trustee to look after it. Sometimes you get questions about people saying, oh, can can they go and, you know, give an enduring power of attorney Mm. attorney to someone else and get them to act? And the answer to that is no, because as soon as... a disqualified person gives an an enduring power of attorney to someone else that that other person is also disqualified effectively so it basically forces the fund to be wound up and other circumstances where you become disqualified other than from compliance reasons could be that the trustees have become bankrupt or one or more of the trustees are convicted of an offence involving dishonest conduct such as theft or fraud which normally means you become a disqualified person and then there's situations where maybe a trustee is simply offering to wind up the fund to avoid the risk of being made non-complying. So there's, there's problems there. You you think that uh, potentially there's a risk here of the fund being made non-complying. One of the things you could you know throw yourself on the ground and beg and plead to the ATO. And one of the things you could potentially do there is offer to say, look, you know, we've fixed the fund up as much as we possibly can. And the way we're going to ensure this never happens again is we're going to wind the fund up and go back to a large offer, a large public offer fund. And hopefully in that situation, the ATO won't make the fund non-compliance. Now, it's not guaranteed, mm. but I have seen people offer that up and the ATO go, oh, okay, all right. Well, then in that circumstance, we won't make you non-compliant, but there's certainly no guarantees of that outcome whatsoever. Okay.
1: All right. So if we're in a position where we choose to wind up the fund or we're forced to wind up the fund, what are some of the things that an advisor should be looking at?
0: All right. Now, the first thing I would probably want to have a look at, uh, especially if it involves clients having an option to wind up the fund, is the fund's CGT position. So if I'm going to wind up, then there will be, you know, the fund's going to be selling assets um, potentially to fund rollovers or doing in-specie transfers. So I'm going to be triggering CGT events um, that may obviously crystallize a large capital gain that would reduce the amount that I have available to roll over over or pay out. Uh, And remember, don't forget to take into account that any deferred gains that may be lying around from the introduction of the transfer balance cap which would need to be brought to account if we sold or transfer those assets. Those so just-
1: third gains, gosh, have almost forgotten about those. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm they're still down there. Down. They're, oh, lurking. they're lurking. They're lurking. They're lurking, mm. Kim.
0: So if you just go and have a look at, you know, what the current CGT position is, if you reset those cost bases, um, mm. then, you know, if you go and sell the assets out there may be that lurking deferred gain sitting there. So it's mm. just really important to have an idea of, you know, the impact of those capital gains. And if the client's only a couple of years away from retirement phase and transferring into pension, we're effectively now paying CGT that we may not have to pay if we keep the fund open till that point in time.
1: Right. So that's what I was going to say, actually. So obviously, if the members are in accumulation phase... We, we need to think about their capital gains tax. But yeah. if their fund is in pension phase, wouldn't we not need, really need to worry about it so much in that situation?
0: Well, funny, if the fund is 100% in pension phase, that is, it's using the segregated assets method by default, then yeah, you're right. So long as we sold all the assets prior to fully commuting the pension then any gains we realise would simply be disregarded and therefore tax free because those assets at the time of disposal are being used to support a pension and therefore segregated current pension assets, we just simply disregard those gains and they would be tax free. However, if the fund has both pension and accumulation assets, and this can maybe be for a couple of reasons. first one would be that one of the members has a transfer balance cap issue and they've been restricted in what they can transfer through to the tax-free retirement phase. So in that situation, they may have both an account-based pension and an accumulation account. Um, Or because one of the members simply hasn't retired yet. Okay, so then it will be that that CGT exemption will be calculated likely using the unsegregated assets method and therefore part of any net realised capital gains will be taxable in that situation. And in this case, I should try to have an idea of what that CGT liability may be before I recommend wind up so the client can obviously make an informed decision.
1: Right, and what about if they're in a capital loss position What's, What if the fund has capital losses from prior years? What should they think about then?
0: Yeah, good question, Kim. um Obviously, if the fund was one hundred percent in pension phase, then any capital losses I realize on disposal of the fund's segregated current pension assets, which is what they would be, mm-hmm. um, would simply be disregarded. so they never happen. so you know i've got to think about winding up I'd I lose those losses but they never really actually happened anyway. However, if the fund wasn't in that position, I was in accumulation phase or only partly in pension phase, then any capital losses I realise on disposal, you know, I would realise them, I'd have them there, but they would eventually be extinguished when I wound up the fund as they don't transfer to that new fund on rollover. So if I'm generating capital losses by the disposal or if I've got these carried forward capital losses, when I finally wind up the fund, then those losses just get extinguished. Now, here, really important to remember, those losses actually have a notional value of 10% of the amount of the loss. And why is that? Well, I can use those losses to offset a capital gain, and therefore I'm not going to have to pay capital gains tax generally of 10% Mm. on the value of those future gains. So losses have a value, and if I'm winding up the fund and those losses get extinguished, then I lose the value of those losses. So once again, I just need to make sure the client is aware of that and they're able to make an informed decision and say, doesn't matter. I realise I'm losing the value of them, but I still want to get out of here. Right,
1: okay. So, So the losses are definitely a consideration. And what else do they need to consider about the assets?
0: Okay, another thing that we sometimes see is whether that fund has frozen or illiquid assets that may be difficult to deal with because... I'm not going to be able to wind up the fund until I've got all of those assets out of the fund. So
1: does that mean if I've got a frozen asset or an asset that I can't sell, I can't really wind up the fund?
0: No, not necessarily. So if if I've got a frozen asset, I could consider approaching the product provider to see whether they've got any hardship provisions which would allow me to potentially, you know, transact on those assets. Now, that may not be the case, but Mm. sometimes we always say, just go back and check, right? You never know. Um, But if there are no hardship provisions, what we have seen people do is that they do an off-market transfer where they either sell the asset to the members or pay it out as an in Specie lump sum benefit if they've satisfied a condition of release, and then they just hold that frozen asset in their own personal name, and it doesn't really matter what the you know the product mm. provider how they get it recorded, it's out of the fund for the fund's um, you know yeah. uh, returns essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. And and what about if that asset's worthless though? Let's say they had shares in a company that it collapsed and a liquidator or administrator had been appointed. What happens in that case? Yeah,
0: another good question. This is one we see from time to time as well. And in that situation, you'd generally be able to declare that the shares are worthless where the liquidator or an administrator has declared in writing that no further distribution will be made from that company. So for CGT purposes, you can declare an absolute loss in that situation. So here, you know, talk to your auditor, but generally they're they're happy with uh, some sort of written determination from the liquidator or administrator, that nothing else is coming out of this asset, so therefore it is a complete write-off, it is worthless, Mm -hmm. Um, and so then you can potentially transfer those shares out of the thing. They will have a zero zero balance. But once again, just to be sure, just chat to your order to see what they will require in that circumstance.
1: Okay. Okay, so is there any other things we need to consider?
0: Well, yeah, there is. The next thing I would want to think about is whether the fund is paying pensions. Now, we've already talked about that, but the main question here is whether they're paying multiple pensions to any members.
1: Okay, so we already talked about pensions in CGT. Why am I now worrying about if a fund is paying multiple pensions to an individual?
0: Well, if they're receiving multiple pensions, it could be because they've deliberately set up different pensions at different times, so as to segregate tax-free and taxable component into separate pensions, potentially for estate planning purposes. So what I potentially could here, let's just say I've got an SMSF, my balance is 100% taxable component. I'm thinking about making a non-concessional contribution. I've just satisfied a conditional lease such as retirement. What I could do is take that amount that I've already got sitting in my self-managed fund and actually commence a pension. That's now a separate interest and I'll lock in that tax component, 100% taxable component. Then I go and make my non-concessional contribution that comes into the fund as tax-free, mm-hmm. and on that very same day, I also start a second pension with a 100% tax-free component. Now, now I've got two separate interests. Yeah. And the purpose there or the intention there is that second pension with 100% tax-free, I'm going to divert that off to the adult kids, maybe from a previous relationship or something along those lines, because when it goes to that adult, those adult kids, it's going to be 100% tax-free because that's the tax component. And then for the taxable pension, I'm going to pay that off to the, the current spouse, whether that's my initial first spouse or only spouse or the second spouse whatever, um, because that's always going to go regardless of the fact it's a taxable component because it's going to a spouse that meets the definition of a tax dependent that's also going to go tax-free as well.
1: So the dual pension strategy, we like yeah, that one. Yeah. But what do we need to be careful about here?
0: Well, if I'm going to wind up, I need to make really sure I commute my pensions in a way that doesn't merge the tax components and undo all of that structuring work. So, for example, let's say we, if we were to have a client in their early 70s with two separate pensions, one, 100% taxable component, and the second, 100% tax-free, like I talked about before, maybe after doing something like a recontribution strategy in 2022 due to mm-hmm. those work test changes. We saw a lot of people doing that, didn't we? Yeah. Um, now, if I go and commute both those pensions at the same time to facilitate a rollover to a large fund, then what's going to happen there is that that actually both ceases both of those pensions, and those two different pensions Pension interests merge into the one accumulation interest. So, for example, in the above situation or example, if I commuted both pensions at the same time, I would end up, instead of with two separate pension interests, I would end up with one accumulation interest that is now 50-50 tax-free taxable. Okay. Yeah. Then if I rolled that one interest over to a different fund, so such as a large public offer fund, and then even if I come into two separate pensions in the large public offer fund, both of those pensions are now going to be fifty fifty tax free taxable. So any death benefit paid off to those adult kids is now going to be subject to death benefits tax. So I've undone all of that really good structuring advice.
1: Well, that would be a shame. Is there any way you could avoid that?
0: Yeah, the, the easiest way to avoiding that is just staggering the commutation and roll over the different pensions. So I could commute the first tax-free pension, roll that over to start a new 100% tax-free pension in the large fund, and one, then once that's complete, then I commute and roll over the remaining pension, and I end up with the same structure in that large fund. Now, mm-hmm. here in this situation where I'm, I'm commuting and rolling over the 100% tax-free pension first – I just need to be careful that there's not any sort of accumulation accounts sitting there because Mm -hmm. as soon as I commute, it merges in with those. So if I had an accumulation account sitting there first, I'd get rid of that. Then I'd roll over the first tax-free pension and then the second or any sort of combination just so long as I'm not mixing that tax-free component in with anything else that's got taxable component.
1: So the timing of it's all very important.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So while we're talking about pensions, are there any other issues that I need to check?
0: Yeah, a couple. Um, If I'm paying an account-based pension, it's really important to ensure that I comply with those pro-rata pension payment rules that apply when I fully commute to pay a fully commuted pension. So in that situation, everyone thinks account-based pensions are fully commutable. Well, they kind of are, but subject to some rules, right? Mm. So if I'm fully commuting the pension, I need to make sure that I pay out a pro-rata minimum pension payment. Okay, before I commute that pension, right? Now, if I don't, the pension will actually fail the pension standards. And as a result, I will be deemed to have ceased that pension, or not me ceasing the pension, but the pension will cease on the first day of the financial year, i.e. back on 1 July. Mm -hmm. And now I'm paying a lot of tax, especially if I go and sell my assets and realise a large capital gain that would have otherwise been tax-free because those assets Mm -hmm. at the time of disposal, unfortunately are no longer pension assets. it's a big trap,
1: isn't it? Yeah, it's
0: a really big trap. Just Mm. a simple little thing of forgetting to pay that pension payment can Mm. result. And then not only that, it has a whole bunch of knock-on consequences, you know, transfer balance cap reporting and the value Mm. that you're reporting and when you're doing it, it's it's just a nightmare. Just Mm. make sure you pay your pro rata minimum pension payment.
1: Very good advice. And what if we're not paying, you know, just a standard account-based pension? What if we're paying a non-commutable complying pension, such as a term-allocated pension or a TAP? What happens there?
0: Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? We're we're talking about this, and every time we talk about, you know, winding up an SMS, a lot of Mm. it comes back to whether we're paying a pension or not. Now, here, we get this a fair amount, too, because Mm. what people think is because that's a non-commutable pension, they need to run the pension to the end of the term – and that that will prevent the fund from being able to be wound up. For example, we had a question on this just the other day where we had a single-member self-managed super fund paying a tap that only had $20,000 left in the tap, and the fund had nothing else. Mm. So you would normally look at a $20,000 self-managed super and think that that is complete madness from a cost perspective, yeah. right? And this client absolutely wanted to get out of there because not only are they paying, you know, all the admin fees, but it's only on twenty thousand dollars. So all those fixed fees, effectively in MER probably up around ten or 12 or 13%, which is just crazy, right? Mm. So, now in that situation, that client, unfortunately, by the previous, I don't think it was a financial advisor, I think it was an accountant or something to that extent, because talking to um, the advisor in this particular situation, I didn't get the gist that they previously had an advisor. They'd just been told by someone, don't know who that was, mm. sorry, you can't wind up this fund because you've got a term allocated pension and they're non commutable. So, you have to keep the self-management fund running. Until the balance runs out, mm-hmm. right? So the the advisor or the client had gone and seen an advisor eventually, um, and the advisor maybe talking about some other issues. I hope they're not just getting advice on twenty thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars. And they gave us a call and we said, no, 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 you're completely uh, entitled to actually commute and roll over a tap to. Uh, public offer fund that has an open tap that will ex- accept it, and there are still a few around. There's I, a few. I, I won't mention <laughs> any names, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 so if maybe. Um, in that situation, we could they could then commute that and roll that over to the large public offer fund, and then commence uh, the term allocated pension there. That was all fine. You know, they kept their assets test exemption, not but that, that was going to be a big issue for this client. Um, and then we simply were able to wind up the self-managed super fund. So don't think because you're paying uh, you know, one of these non-commutable types of income streams that you can't potentially roll over.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and What about the other old complying defined benefit um, pensions, like your old lifetime and life expectancy pensions? What do we need to think about here?
0: Yeah, um, you can. You can, but it starts to get really complicated, complicated, and probably what we can't really easily talk about on a uh, on a podcast without blowing everyone's brains out the back or completely losing them in the the technical nature of the discussion. Mm. Um, But in this case, what we do have is a comprehensive article that looks at the issues of commuting and rolling over these kinds of pensions. And we also have a section in our SMSF guide that looks at the assets test exemption issue and maintaining that if yeah. you're rolling over one of these complying pensions out of a self-managed super fund into a large public offer fund because there are certain criteria. You can keep the assets test exemption, but you've got to do that in accordance with certain rules. Um, and so we cover all of that. So beyond the scope of what we can talk about here.
1: Hmm. Fair enough. Um so let's now move on to some other issues. What else do I need to think about when I'm winding up a self managed super fund?
0: Yep, okay. The next thing I need to think about is whether the member has made any sort of contributions to the fund that they may want to claim a tax deduction for. So if they have, I need to get the notice of intention to the fund and get an acknowledgement back out of the fund before I wind up the fund. Otherwise, the notice I provide to the new fund will be invalid, right? So they don't get to claim their tax deduction. And another one I need to check is whether the fund holds any insurance policies over members. So, And this is really important, Mm. right? Because if yes, I need to check to see if the client still needs the policy, and if so, whether I can get the same insurance in the new fund. And obviously... I want to do that before I cancel the existing yes. policy. Yes. Now, alternatively, what we could consider is, if it's possible, transferring the insurance to the member's own name, so you can certainly do that, um, but assuming that they can actually afford those premiums. Yeah,
1: outside of super, they have to pay yeah. them personally. Yeah. Now, this might be a little bit off topic, but insurance can get a bit contentious when there's been a relationship breakdown in oh, the fund, yeah. and one person might be leaving the fund, and they could even forget about the insurance because it typically doesn't have a value.
0: Yeah, look, and we, we do see not a huge amount, but it's certainly probably a couple of questions every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of related to wind up, but maybe not. In, in this situation, what happens when there's a... a relationship breakdown one person says I'm out of here what mm-hmm. they'll do is they'll roll over all their benefits maybe out to a public offer fund um, which may then result in you know the old couple fund being wound up right yeah. um, but what people do forget about is the insurance because if it's a term life policy or something like that it doesn't have a value right mm. it's just a policy and yeah. they'll go okay value all the assets to come up to that there might be some, you know, splitting arrangements or whatever. This is the amount that we're rolling over. Then they roll over mm. to the new fund, and then they resign their trusteeship, no longer a member. And then someone thinks, ah, oh, the life policy. Mm. And then they go back to their ex-spouse and say, oh, can you transfer the life policy over to me? And how, how do you think that goes? Mm, that Sometimes it's all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times it's not okay um, mm-hmm. because if you don't like the side of the person, how willing are you to be amenable to their, their request? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that can really catch people out. So uh, in, in that situation, make sure you don't forget about that life insurance policy mm-hmm. and deal with it as a part of the process of leaving the fund.
1: Okay, that's a good point. All right, I think that just about does it. Um, If an advisor wanted to know more about the sorts of things that they should consider before winding up a self-managed super fund, um, where could they go?
0: Yeah, okay, so, Kim, all we've talked about here is actually the things you need to think about before you actually wind up. Now, there's... A whole another step of process or um, process you've got to go through the steps, to yeah. actually wind up the fund. So, what we do have is our comprehensive 300 page self managed super fund guide that actually has a whole chapter on what we've talked about so far as well as the steps you need to follow to wind up the fund. Okay, now to get access to that, just log into the CFS advisor site and go to the first tech page, and it's in the self managed super fund section and it is. Funnily enough, the last chapter of the SMSF gone. Oh, there you go. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, and that's a bit about it. If you can't get access to that, give us a call and uh, and we can get that to you. Other than that, um, yeah, that's winding up an SMSF All the things mm. you should think about before the decision is made.
1: Okay, I think that's really good. Thanks a lot for that, Craig.
0: Thanks, Kim, and thanks, everyone, for listening. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Advantius Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.